This is the Sergio Rodriguez Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Sergio Rodriguez Show, a show unlike any other. Joining me today, one of the best guys in the college basketball world, friend of mine from back in the days at ESPN, former coach at St. John's, former coach at UCLA, and currently an analyst for Fox Sports, the great Steve Lavin. Steve, how are you? Great to be with you, Sergio. Best time of the year, March Madness, at least in my view. I'm a little biased, but uh, no better sporting event than the NCAA tournament. Uh, right up there with the World Cup, World Series, Super Bowl, uh, Little League World Series. But something about the three weeks that captivates uh, fans throughout the world makes this the best in my book. How many people still call you Daddy Labs like I do? <laughs> I forget. Was that Scott Van Pelt or yeah. <laughs> some of my friends at ESPN, uh, which you're aware of, uh, first gave me that tag. But uh, Lav or Coach Lav is usually what I'm called most frequently. But uh, I don't take offense regardless of what people call me because having worked at UCLA in Los Angeles, a major media market with high expectations, and then in New York, at St. John's with uh, high expectations as well. And another media market, uh, I'm accustomed to getting called everything under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, let's speak about, before we speak about the Sweet 16, I want to speak about some of those first and second round games, some things that jumped out at me. Let's start here. So one of the things that really drove me crazy with the selection committee was you know, particularly you brought up St. John's, and I mentioned this in a show that I did earlier. So St. John's finishes fourth in the Big East, which normally is a recipe to get an at-large bid. They don't get it. A lot of the, a lot of the talk that came out was that the NET was low. Okay, we'll accept that. But Loyola has an NET of nine and gets an eight seed. How's that fair to Illinois, and how's that fair to Loyola? Did you think that they were seeded improperly going in? You know, for starters, you have to give the context that this was, big picture, the most complicated year in the history of college basketball. So naturally, the selection committee had the biggest challenge in terms of how do they make it all work. And for instance, you know, if you have one team that's played 16 games, another team has played 28 games, uh, they may end up facing each other and a team that's played 28 games has developed, you know, at a different rate because of those game experiences as opposed to a team that doesn't have enough games under their belt. Uh, but the team that plays less games might be more fresh. So from a mental and physical standpoint, fresh, you know, minds and bodies is important going to the NCAA tournament. Uh, the other, you know, question is teams that get hot. Let's say Georgetown. They took advantage of the postseason conference tournament. They win four straight games. How do you see them, uh, given how dominant they were over those four days in New York with Patrick Ewing and his Hoyas capturing the imagination of the entire country and really a rebirth, a resurrection of Georgetown basketball? And then you've got Oregon State, you know, who struggled throughout the year, but these last five games in the conference tournament and in the NCAA tournament shooting 42% from long range, but 
Oregon State winning the Pac-12 conference tournament, how do you seed them as well? And so, you know, you have teams that have been consistent under these unusual conditions and performed at a high level, and then they end up facing a team that is hot of late. And momentum is so important, and we're seeing that play out. Yet, with that said, let's take the other extreme. UCLA went into the NCAA tournament with four consecutive losses. Three of those four losses, they had double-digit leads in the second half that slipped away. You know, their NCAA tournament bid was in jeopardy. They end up playing in the first four. The brackets break a certain way after they get past Michigan State. They were trailing the Spartans by 11 at half. They come back in that game, and they haven't looked back. Here they are in the Sweet 16. Uh, they end up playing Abilene Christian, you know, in their third game of the tournament and uh, dominated them. So I explain those different scenarios to basically create the big picture of the selection committee had an impossible task to try and balance the brackets in a way that wouldn't lead to natural second guessing and uh, some scratching of the head. And I think uh, COVID-19 has made this, you know, more of a March madness than we have become accustomed to. It's always madness, but it's even crazier madness this year. You spoke about Oregon State, UCLA, and you mentioned Georgetown, who played Colorado game one. What do you think has been the biggest difference with the Pac-12 teams doing so well? Obviously, USC still alive in the Sweet 16. Why do you think they played so well early? Did you think it was just a matchup thing? Because a lot of it is that. And then conversely, tell me why the Big Ten basically had their struggles throughout in in, in the first two rounds. Yeah, the Big Ten all season long, in my view, was the deepest conference in the country. But the deepest conference doesn't necessarily make it the best conference. It depends on the criteria that you're using to evaluate or to grade a conference. For instance, my first year at St. John's, 2010-11, we had 11 teams, a record setting, 11 teams out of the Big East in the NCAA tournament. And the team that finished 9-9 nine and nine with a 500 conference record, the UConn Huskies with Kemba Walker and company, won the national title. And so within their own league, they struggled. But in the non-conference, the preseason, they won the Maui Invitational. They went undefeated. Correct. And after going 9-9 nine and nine in the regular season Big East Conference, they stepped in the postseason and won the Big East Conference tournament and then won the NCAA tournament. So they were undefeated, unprecedented. It'll probably never happen again in the postseason and in the preseason, but they were a 500 team within the league. Now, my theory on why they won the national championship was the Big East and the different styles of play and the competitive nature of the conference forged a mindset and a preparation, a belief that they could cut down the nets. And the difference when I look at the Big Ten this year is I don't think the firepower, the personnel was there when compared to the 2010-11 Big East Conference. And so you had some teams, I'll give examples, Wisconsin or Iowa, who 
you know, to have different degrees of success, but had frontline players that were challenged in terms of their foot speed. And so when I looked at the Big Ten, I saw a number of teams that were challenged uh, because of that foot speed. You get the NCAA tournament, you know, quickness, length, skill, guard play, as well as the jockey, the coach on the sidelines, and how experienced those coaches are plays a part. And I'll give you an example. In the Big Ten, it probably surprises people. Only Tom Izzo has been to the Final Four. You know, Fab Mott has moved on and took teams to the Final Four. Uh, You know, Steve Fisher back in the day, John Beeline more recently took, you know, Michigan teams to the Final Four. Way back, Bobby Knight took a number of teams to the Final Four and won the national championships. But right now, it's only Tom Izzo. And, Coach, that league has not won a championship in over 20 years. Yep, 2000. The team Cleves, the Flintstones was the last time the Big Ten team won the national championship. Now, they've been well represented in terms of Final Fours. And I think that's the most important aspect because, you know, you can't get carried away in a single elimination game format. You know, the NCAA tournament, not a best of five like the NBA or a best of seven in terms of a series where the better team more often than not is going to emerge as the winner. 18 to 20-year-olds over a two-hour period, anything can happen. And that's what we're looking at. It's a two-hour window. And if you don't play well in the NCAA tournament in that two-hour window, you go home. And if you're able to get a group that plays well enough for six consecutive two-hour windows, 12 hours total, uh, that's how you win a national title. I was a part of that experience in 1995 as an assistant at UCLA. We won the national title in Seattle. And our team was 32-1 and one that season and really had a sustained effort. Jim Herrick was the head coach. I was an assistant with Lorenzo Romar and Mark Gottfried. But Ed O'Bannon, Tyus Edney, uh, George Zedek, our center from the Czech Republic, uh, Toby Bailey, J.R. Henderson, uh, Cameron Dollar. It was a special group. And they had a unique and kind of unusual run of sustained level of play. And we're seeing that with Baylor and Gonzaga. The one constant this season in the most unusual set of circumstances because of COVID is Baylor and Gonzaga have maintained a level of play. Even though Baylor lost in the conference tournament, people panicked. Uh, That actually, I think, helps them having that loss as opposed to going in undefeated, which now Gonzaga, with the weight of the world on their back, if they don't manage it the right way, and Mark Few is doing a wonderful job, hitting on all the right notes, pushing all the right buttons, and Gonzaga has the most talent in terms of future pros of any team in the field, and they play with the greatest margin for error. But this is a fragile proposition when you look at trying to get 18- to 20-year-olds to play consistently. We know inherently 18- to 20-year-olds are not consistent in any aspect of their life. Even if they're brilliant and they're talented, uh, that's what makes them amateurs. And uh, this is a big business, but at heart, these kids are still young people growing and learning. And that's why we love the madness, the unpredictability of it, as opposed to the pro sports or the, the, the NBA. Correct. Coach, Rutgers blew that game, man. I mean, I just felt they took the air out of the ball against Houston too soon. They killed their rhythm. And, you know, it would have been a cool story locally to get that team there 
what what do you think happened in that game to them? Did you think that inexperience hurt? Well, I think a combination. It's one thing to get a team there, Steve Peichel, excellent coach, and the first step is to get a program to the NCAA tournament. I'll give you an example. My first year at St. John's, 2010-11, we hadn't been to an NCAA tournament in a decade. And I inherited a terrific group of players from Norm Roberts. But as a group, they hadn't been to the tournament yet. Uh, We make the NCAA tournament, but it's a first-time experience for that team. For me, I was at UCLA and Purdue, so as an assistant and a head coach, you know, I've been to 13 NCAA tournaments. I understand the conditions. But that's different than having a roster of players who've never stepped into the conditions of the NCAA tournament. Then we start over because all those seniors left from the 2010-11 team that made the NCAA tournament. And the following year, we didn't have a single player with NCAA tournament experience because Dwayne Poli transferred to San Diego State. Cool. And Malik Stiff at Christmas transferred to a school, a Division II school in the South. So not a single player on the roster had Division I experience. 13 wins, right? Then the next year, 17 wins. The next year, 20 wins. And the next year, 21 wins. My final season, we make the NCAA tournament again. But guess what? No one on the roster, again, had been in the NCAA tournament. And so the successful programs that I've been a part at a part of Purdue, they were in the NCAA tournament on a regular basis. And UCLA, we were in the NCAA tournament on a regular basis. So we always had players, leaders. We had personnel on our roster who had been there before, whether it was an Elite Eight or Sweet 16 or a national championship. And uh, now St. John's is going through that again because they have a roster with no one that's been to an NCAA tournament. You look at the programs like Gonzaga, Oregon, uh, the teams that make deep runs, uh, they've been there. They're familiar with the conditions, not only the experienced coaching, like Jim Beheim, but also players who have been in the NCAA tournament. So experience is a big factor, and I think this was a big first step for Rutgers to get to the tournament. And now the goal is to get back and have some players who have been there before and are ready not just be there, take some photographs like a tourist that's passing through, but instead to make a run to an Elite Eight, to a Final Four, to try and cut down the net. Let's also give credit to Houston. I mean, Calvin Sampson and his team is in the NCAA tournament on a regular basis. They've been winning 25 to 30 games every year, making it look easy. And their numbers in terms of defense are as good as it gets. They're one of the better defensive teams in the country. If you look at their opponent's three-point shooting percentage, uh, the points per game that's allowed, uh, all the combination of, you know, Ken Palm metrics, uh, Houston rates at a very high level, and Kelvin Sampson has taken teams at Washington State, at Oklahoma, at Indiana, and now Houston with a stop in the NBA in between to bring some of that flavor to his coaching. And so sometimes we see a team give up a big lead like UCLA did. They lost three double-digit leads in the second half You know of those four straight losses before they stepped in the tournament. But they reset their mindset. And now their role is in the Sweet 16. It's a very fragile proposition. But we sometimes fail to remember the other team, the opponent, is trying to win. And so you have to also give credit when there's a comeback 
to the fact that Houston made all the plays and took advantage and seized the opportunity as Rutgers didn't close out, didn't finish the deal. And that's not anyone's fault, but that's competition and why we love the NCAA tournament. Now, there are things we can learn when you look back and a team makes a dramatic comeback. Yes, there is an element of a team that's collapsing or not capitalizing or not executing in terms of you know defensive breakdowns or offensive breakdowns or free throw shooting, which was a challenge for Rutgers all year long. Uh, they're a really poor free throw shooting team, and we and, know and that. It seemed, and it seemed like they had cold spells for minutes at a time throughout the entire year. Yep, and many teams do, right? I mean, UCLA is one of the more challenged teams offensively in the country. If you look at the numbers, UCLA plays at a slow tempo, 337 in Division One basketball in terms of playing like a tortoise. Well, listen, that's um, how Mickey played in uh... – in Cincinnati, Cincinnati. right? <laughs> yep. And and Jay Wright had great success playing at that tempo, uh, like a baseball team that doesn't swing at bad pitches or a football team that doesn't get penalized. Uh, you know, the team that makes the fewest mistakes, you know, is more likely to win. You know, Vince Lombardi said it, right? Victory favors the team that makes the fewest mistakes. And that's why the mental is three times as important as the physical. But you need the physical. No one wins a national title without terrific players. All right, so we move through the history. So we move to the Sweet 16. I'm looking at the games. I'm pumped for Sunday's games more than Saturday, but let's start on Saturday. Baylor-Villanova. Do you give Villanova a shot in this game without without uh, without them being at Colin full Gillespie. strength? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, with Colin Gillespie out, um, it clearly diminishes the you know chances of Villanova upsetting Baylor, but Villanova has that championship culture, and with two national titles and now three Final Fours under you know Jay Wright's belt during his tenure, and of course they had that other championship with Raleigh Massimino and they upset Georgetown back in 1985, one of the greatest upsets in the history of college basketball, when three teams were in the Final Four out of the Big East. St. John's, Villanova, and Georgetown. So Villanova had a championship culture before Jay, but Jay has taken it to another level. He's right up there in my book in terms of coaches of his generation, uh, Tony Bennett and Jay Wright, two of the very best. They're the Jedi coaches in terms of this generation. So Villanova uh, will come up with a game plan that will allow them to be competitive. Um, and if Villanova's not on, if Baylor is not on their game and they don't play uh, to the best of their ability, then Villanova will have a chance. But if Baylor plays, you know, an A-plus level game and Villanova is going to try and stop them from doing that because they're going to try and control the pace, they're not going to turn the ball over, they're not going to give Baylor those runouts, there'd be no easy baskets, and they're going to try and play the game in the 60s in terms of scoring. And uh, if Villanova shoots it well, that's always been the key. You know, when they get 10 threes or more and shoot a high percentage in terms of getting good looks and shooting proficiently from the three-point line and not turning it over, they can beat anybody. But without Colin Gillespie, Villanova has a razor-thin margin for error. That means they have to play near-perfect basketball and hope they catch Baylor 
on an off day, an off night. And if those two happen and line up, uh, it'll be a dramatic finish and a game worth watching. Get the popcorn, get the beer or the root beers, or whatever you enjoy, because uh, it's a contrast of styles, a study in contrast. Baylor, pedal the metal, wants to get up and down the floor and impose their preferred up-tempo game. And Villanova wants to dial it down and make it a grinder, be more more methodical and try and rattle, unnerve, uh, discombobulate Baylor because of their approach to playing at a slow, methodical pace. Arkansas plays Oral Roberts. And when I watched the first half of that Arkansas-Colgate game, I think if Colgate was ready to win, See, I felt like they were happy to be there, but I don't know if they were ready to win that game. They were they were doing and dominating that game. And they kind of got away from what they did. I thought Arkansas could have been had. Oral Roberts has an NBA guard. You know, look, they're a 12-point favorite, right? So it's not like, you know, it's not a, 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 a toss-up game. But I don't think Arkansas has shown during the year that it can go up and down. In the middle part of the year, they, you know, they struggled in the SEC, which wasn't exactly, it was better than we thought earlier, but it wasn't like it was a huge league. I don't think Oral doesn't have a shot here. What do you think? Yeah, Oral Roberts, you know, is a confident team. You know, obviously, as a 15 seed upsetting Ohio State, uh, puts, you know, a little. Uh, pep in your step, you know, puts the wind in your sails. And then to follow that up with the victory over Florida, uh, they've now won seven straight games. So to think that, you know, back in late February, they were 11 and 10, basically a 500 team. Now they're 18 and 10 and, you know, playing the best basketball of the year. And that's where momentum, and, and we talked about it earlier, what I love about the conference tournament is it gives everyone a fresh start, a reset. You're involved of all your sins. You're involved of the setbacks. And you're given this chance in your conference tournament to make good on the opportunity, fresh snow, uh, a new beginning. And uh, those stories to me are so interesting. NC State under Jim Valvano, when they won the national title, you know, they limped into the ACC tournament. They found a way to win and then continued the magic and ultimately cut down the net, but they were a team that had battled injuries. And I also look at teams that have overcome adversity, you know, sport nears life and sport in its purest form is a metaphor for life in terms of the virtues, the values, the attributes, the traits, the characteristics we can learn through sport, uh, resiliency, preparation, being a good teammate, attention to detail, uh, belief and faith, you know, working as a unit uh, in team sports in particular, but uh, boxing, which is an individual sport, or golf, right? They teach us lessons as well. And we gain inspiration by watching athletes, you know, a Joe Frazier, a Tiger Woods, or a great team. And so uh, watching March Madness, you know, I draw inspiration from teams and individuals and coaches and adversity, what I call bloodied but unbowed. They're dangerous teams, uh, whether it's a mid-major school or it's a power conference team that's played great competition, has been beat up, but they've learned through their setbacks. They've reframed 
in terms of their mindset and have shored up or improved upon some of the deficiencies. And that makes them more dangerous when they step into the NCAA tournament because they've seen everything. And that goes back to that 2010-11 Big East team and UConn that was a 500 team within league, but they knew they had a great sparring partner during the regular season, and that set them up to kick everyone's butt in the postseason and ultimately cutting down the net. Yeah. I think it also helps Oral Roberts that they played Arkansas early in the year. I think that they'll get a chance – you know, they know what, what to expect in that game. So I expect them to play better than that Vegas line that was set there. Oregon State, believe it or not, a big underdog. I mean, a seven-point underdog in a game like this when you're out of a power conference is big. I believe that a team like Loyola Chicago has a huge advantage game two of the weekend, just like Syracuse, because they play – they're weird to match up. They're hard to prepare for on a short on the short one day rest. But I think mm-hmm. with a week to prepare, Oregon State's going to play better than people think. And I also think Houston will handle Syracuse better because of their ability to rebound against the zone. What do you think about those two games? Well, I agree. When you, you know, for starters, let's take Houston. I'm not saying that, you know, who's going to win that game. But what I study and look at is the trends, you know, the strengths, the vulnerabilities of the respective teams and how that may play a part in the outcome of who wins. And it's true. You know, when you play Syracuse's zone, A, you want to try and beat it down the floor by playing good defense, getting stops and shutouts, which – Houston, one of the better defensive teams in the country, is capable of getting, you know, consecutive, a run, a string of stops or shutouts lead to runouts. And if you can get down the floor and get a good look before that Syracuse zone gets organized and set up, that goes a long way to helping your cause. Uh, then once you face that zone on the half court, you know, you've got to attack it appropriately. The ball movements, the man movement. Uh, looking at the short corner, sometimes they trap the short corner, sometimes they don't, trying to get to the high post with the elbows, uh, the free throw line, that's a great area to operate. We had success against Syracuse. We had players like Dominic Pointer, who had versatility, get catches at the elbow to shot, make a play, make or drive it. And so we beat them in the carrier dome. It was the elbow entries that uh, really were effective for us. And then the third is what you brought up, offensive rebounds which Houston is capable of doing. Uh, when you're in a zone, you don't have the pinpointing responsibility to man defense or checking out or boxing out. And so playing volleyball on the backboard, getting second-chance opportunities, getting fouled, uh, getting yourself to the foul. So uh, Houston is built to attack that Syracuse zone in an effective manner uh, between their shooting their athleticism, their quickness to beat them down the floor, to get on the glass, and in between, beat them down the floor and get on the glass, executing well. Calvin Sampson, experienced coach. But Buddy Bayon has been on fire. Jim Bayon's track record in the tournament is as good as any in the history of basketball. And so that zone, even if you've seen it on film, it's very difficult to face. Now, teams within league, the old Big East, now the ACC have had more success because you see it on a more frequent basis and therefore you're better prepared. It's less overwhelming, uh, but they can mix that zone. They can stretch it out. 
to get in the passing lanes. They can collapse it, uh, play it like bees on honey around the basket or what I call the accordion or Venus flytrap effect. So based on opponent's personnel, Jim Beheim makes tremendous adjustments uh, to give opponents different looks. And uh, it can unnerve, it can rattle, discombobulate opponents. And that's why he's been so successful using that 2-3 zone. The Sunday games, like I said, it's something that I'm very much looking forward to. I think that each one brings something different. I think the Creighton-Gonzaga game is just going to be fun to watch because I believe there's going to be a lot of points scored. The Florida-Michigan game, the Florida State-Michigan game, you know, LSU could have won that game if they just gotten anything from their post play. Anything. It, they had the better athletes. They looked like the better team. But Michigan was just better prepared to handle the game in the half court. The other two games, I'm fascinated to watch. The Oregon-UCLA game, uh, the Oregon-USC game, because I feel that these matchups within the leagues are, are, are just so unpredictable. You don't know how they're going to happen. And then I think if UCLA makes that game ugly against Alabama, I think they have a shot. How do you see Sunday playing out? Well, which one should we start with? I, You know, if we look at Oregon and USC, um, it's an intriguing matchup. The Mobley brothers, Evan and Isaiah, are as dynamic a duo. Brothers that, you know, obviously know one another because it's family. And then having grown up together and played together, they're a uh, a game within the game in terms of playing in pairs or a tandem and their intuitive ability to help one another uh, play to their strength. And Isaiah putting up big numbers here in the postseason in terms of shooting percentage, rebounds, and points. We know Evan is a potential number one, two, or three pick in this upcoming draft of franchise-changing talent. And then Taj Edi, uh, the graduate transfer from Santa Clara, his shot-making and play-making has been critical Drew Peterson as well, uh, the size to see over the top, the playmaking shot make, uh, effective with the drive in terms of his economy of movement and uh, using the bounce, the dribble with purpose. So I like uh, USC, not necessarily win the game, but uh, they are a team that could get to a Final Four, and it wouldn't shock me when you have someone like Evan Mobley and you're playing with confidence yeah. and coming out of the league that now has demonstrated uh, they're legit. I mean, four teams. In the Sweet 16 out of the Pac-12, no one would have predicted or guessed that. There may be a few people out there that did, but uh, in terms of pundits and supposed experts, uh, no one had four teams advancing to the Sweet 16. Oregon under Dana Altman, another veteran coach, another jockey that's gotten to the winner's circle before, has had success with all of his stops. And he has a way of changing his defenses, uh, different than Jim Beheim, who does it through the 2-3 and makes changes within that 2-3 zone defense on the half court. Uh, Dana Altman gives you different looks in the full court and the half court. Three-quarter court, run and jump, trap, uh, switching man-to-man, straight zone, and also deploying his players offensively in a manner to take advantage of their skill set, a little bit of that NBA flavor to take advantage of matchups, uh, whether it's size in a mouse-in-the-house matchup down low or using speed and skill on the perimeter to draw a bigger defender away and drive them off the bounce. Uh, you know, they 
take advantage of the transfer portal. L.J. Figueroa, one of St. John's best players, is now with the Oregon Ducks, and they're quacking, and St. John's is at home. Let's face it, St. John's and L.J. Figueroa, uh, they're in the NCAA tournament. Hey, I have a so, question for you. How's Dana Altman getting all these Dominican guys? He got Figueroa, he got Chris Duarte. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what happened, um, from my experience, is 32 years in the business, you know, there are some programs. Gonzaga's done this. Uh, Oregon's done it well. Uh, we did it well at UCLA and St. John's. You know, you take advantage of the relationships that are built over 32 years, like any industry, you know, any profession. Relationships are important. And so those connections, and also when the players come through and their testimony, you know, is strong, when their experience is good, uh, then you've got ambassadors that are out there in the NBA and around the world saying, you know what, you go play for Coach Lab at UCLA or you play for Coach Lab at St. John's or you play for Mark Few at Gonzaga, your family. And so those relationships flourish. And as a result, other players then want to come play at those programs. And Oregon and Gonzaga is an example of that. So uh, just like there are certain hotbeds within the United States, you know, some people really have success like Duke has in Chicago. Well, Coach K was originally from Chicago. Chris Collins is from Chicago. His father was coaching the Bulls. And so, you know, these things matter. And so when you look at the racing form of programs that are successful, uh, you can usually peel back the onion, you know, or the layers of onion. And that was an appropriate, uh, yeah, onion. no pun intended, yeah. with <laughs> Bill Rafferty. Salute to Bill Rafferty. Onion! By, by the but, way, uh, Coach, by the way, Coach, yeah. Raff had one of the greatest lines I've ever heard on TV the other day. He was doing the Illinois game, and he said, and Coffee Cockburn was struggling to get back on defense, and he says, Coffee needs some caffeine on defense. <laughs> that was classic. I heard that, too. Yeah, Raff is <laughs> as good as it gets, just his uh, alliteration, his imagination, you, you had a good one in that Florida State game, too. I texted you about that. I liked that when you said that uh, Leonard Hamilton should be moonlighting as their football coach so they could get that program going. Speak to yeah, me. Yeah, he's, he's had so much experience in football programs in Miami, turning that yeah. basketball program around. Really, it's a football school. And then now he's done that at Florida State, a football school, and he's turned the basketball program around. So, yeah, why not give him a shot? You think they have a good chance to win that game? I picked them to go to the final four. Um, out of that, out of the, them, and I thought they would be playing Texas. Uh, coming, yeah, out I of like there. Florida. I like Florida State in this matchup in particular because Isaiah Livers is out, and so shorter bench for Michigan. And Livers not only was the experienced crunch time performer, but because of his ability to knock down threes and to create off the bounce offensively, uh, that changes, again, back to compressed larger for air, and the spacing on the floor is different. Uh, back to 2010-11, you know, in the Big East tournament, we lose DJ Kennedy. He was the most versatile player on our team. And so against Syracuse, he goes down. We go from what would have been a three seed to probably a five or a six seed, and we're shipped out west to play Gonzaga. If we have DJ Kennedy, and we step into the NCAA tournament as a three seed, no lower than a four, we're probably Sweet 16 or Elite Eight that year. Uh, VCU, Shaka Smart, made the run to the Final Four. Uh, we were right there with them in terms of style of play, our speed, our quickness, 
uh, with Dwight Hardy and Justin Burrell and DJ Kennedy and Malik Booth and Sean Evans. I mean, that was as gifted a team as I coached uh, in terms of their cohesiveness because they played together. Norm Roberts had done an excellent job uh, before the baton was handed to our staff. And uh, we just had to make a couple tweaks just because every coach has their own flavor and style and vision for a program. But, um, you know, a salute to Norm Roberts because he had coached those kids the right way. They just hadn't had success. They just hadn't made a tournament. And if we don't lose DJ Kennedy, we're on a roll. And I think we won 10 of 11 games before DJ Kennedy's injury. And that was in the league that had 11 teams go to the tournament. Correct. So great momentum. And Michigan had great momentum. Then Isaiah Livers goes down. So I give Florida State the edge because of their, you know, defensive looks in the full court and the half court. And again, Leonard Hamilton, a you know, future Hall of Fame coach, similar to Dana Altman in terms of his ability to use his personnel in a manner to disrupt opponents and give them different looks. Uh, they can collapse their defense. They've got great length. Matter of fact, uh, they're the tallest team in the country. Uh, when you look at the metrics in terms of length and height, uh, they're top. And that makes a difference. Resistance at the rim, second shot offensively like volleyball teams, and then when you add their foot speed, and then they're well deployed. So I like Michigan, you know, excellent team, but I think Florida State passes or pushes through and advances in that matchup against the Wolverines. A couple of things to finish up here, because I know you probably have some phenomenal dinner planned for tonight. Maybe I'm good. A, maybe, a little, good maybe, a little, maybe a little wine for tonight. No rush. Yeah, a little Japanese whiskey and wine. Nothing wrong with that after four months on the road. This is my second day back at home after traveling for four months. I left San Francisco the day before Thanksgiving and, and returned uh, two days ago. So I've got uh, now an open schedule uh, other than talking to good friends like yourself. The transfer portal. It seems like every day, even players who have no problems, like how do you justify guys that are playing 25 plus minutes a game entering the transfer portal? I find that to be just, it's out of control. Yeah, it's definitely a concern. And, and we were fortunate, I think, in my you know 20 years of coaching, we may have had five or six transfers. And St. John's, maybe we had you know three. Um, maybe UCLA, we had two. Um, so it is a concern. Um, but I think there are a number of elements that are in play. Uh, for starters, beginning with, you know, AAU basketball and high school basketball, uh, players often transfer on a regular basis. And so, you know, there's less of a stigma about transferring. And also, I think young people see coaches on the move. You know, Shaka Smart leaving Texas today. Uh, coaches that are moving on to the NBA for an opportunity there. Brad Stevens leaving Butler after a couple Final Fours to go to Celtics. And, you know, young people are impressionable. And if they see the adults, if they see their parents, um, you know, moving on and uh, looking for the best opportunity, then they're more likely to mirror the parents or the adults uh, that, you know, are doing that. Uh, young people are impressionable in terms of the, the parents and role model behavior uh, influences their own thinking 
and choices they make. And so it goes back, you know, in my view, um, no one's going to be perfect. But, you know, being interested in young people, developing a rapport from the start, you know, of recruiting and through their time. And again, there are challenges. No one's perfect, so I'm not judging. But I think it's really important now more than ever with the distractions of social media and the smartphones and the electronic and information age that we're in. So the bombardment of media on young people. And so it's easy to be distracted and forget how important relationships and rapport and trust. Uh, those are key. And so you want both assistants that are able to connect and a range of assistants because not every player is going to connect with every assistant. But hopefully you've got like a good playlist, a range of people on your staff so that everyone has on your roster someone they can go to from the head coach, to the assistant coaches, to the operations uh, aspect of the staff and can talk and can share uh, because, as you know, the mental health issue of this generation is something that needs to be given strong consideration. And psychology is a big part of coaching. And so, you know, being interested, being engaged uh, in young people's lives is important. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, certain coaches have relations with their players 10, 20, 30 years later uh, after they played for them. And there are other coaches that don't have those relationships 10, 20, 30 years later. And I think just it comes back to, are you really interested in the well-being of young people and the welfare of young people? And if you are, you'll have those relationships for decades. And if you don't, you won't. And uh, I think transferring is definitely an aspect and it's a viable option. But I think uh, more often than not, it's because there wasn't that connection. Uh, with the staff and also because of the high turnover coaches keep getting fired coaches keep leaving for other jobs they can't fault coaches to leave because they're trying to beat schools to the punch because you're not rewarded for loyalty you're staying or sticking it out um, they're going to look for the fresh flavor the fresh face and they're going to lock chop you and fire you and um, so i think young people see that yeah that in higher education and college athletics uh, there really isn't a degree of loyalty or interest in staying with coaches uh, if they have a couple bad years or even if they don't have a bad year. Yeah, I mean, look at uh, Shaka. often run out. Yeah, I mean, Shaka yeah, left. So. Shaka left because, let's be honest, we all knew at one point he was going to get fired, whether it was this offseason, regardless of how that season went, or yep. he was going to be on the hot seat. He now gets himself a guaranteed six more years, okay? And Texas, although people would say, I had a friend of mine, Text me, why would someone leave Texas to go to Marquette? I said, very simple. Because Texas thinks they're Kentucky and he was going to get fired. Now he's got six more years to be a head coach. Absolutely. And that's, you know, Shaka wanting to look out for his family and be able to help, you know, his family for generations to come because uh, that's kind of next level dough that he's pulling in at Texas and now he's going to pull in at Marquette and God bless him. Cause as you mentioned, uh, no one's going to reward you for staying at a school. I was brought up old school, greatest generation parents. So I was at UCLA 12 years. I would never quit. So until they fired me, I wasn't going to leave. But obviously if I had an agent was thinking differently uh, during our run of five, three, 16s and six years and elite eights and 
averaging 20-plus wins per year and the guys the league, I would have, from a strategic standpoint, been better having someone to send me to a Marquette or an equivalent of Shaka Smart situation. And St. John's, you know, we won at NCAA my first year. We, we went into the NCAA my first year. We went to the NCAA my last year. And in between, went to two NITs. And uh, there was a year where I didn't, lost my father and had cancer, missed a season with coaching. So we didn't make the postseason that year. But um, but naturally, if I looked at it differently, instead of waiting, um, it would have been better for my career. But I don't work that way. And it's because of the way I was raised. Not saying I'm better than anyone else. I respect and admire the guys that keep it moving, you know, pass, go, and collect, go. And they're thinking two steps ahead on the chessboard. Um, I'm a little maybe naive or old school, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm kind of in it to the end. And it's a two-way street, in my view, in terms of loyalty. And uh, once the school fires me, I salute and give thanks and keep it moving. I'm grateful for the opportunity. And you look for the next gift. And then you wish the next guy well because you know how difficult that job is, having been there as a head coach myself. And that's why I wanted Chris Mullen to be successful. I hope Mike Anderson's successful. Um, but it's a really difficult job. you know. So I don't um, begrudge coaches that keep it moving it's just different than the way I've operated my career uh, but I think you know if I was giving you know some life coaching to some of my players I'd have to consider you know what they're going to fire you in a year so you probably should move on because you got to keep putting food on the table for your family and uh, you got to look out for the future generations even after you know you've left this world and, and have children and a legacy to think about. And so who can fault young people or coaches for keeping it moving? But uh, it just I just happened to be a situation where that wasn't my style at UCLA. Coach Katie, you had the wizard of Westwood. You've had a lot of, a lot of Mount Rushmore people around you in basketball. You ever think to yourself, man, I've been fortunate. Your dad, you know, Brett Musburger and TV. Yeah, man. Yeah. Coach, let yeah, me old head. I'm an old head guy. Like every, from a young age, you know, when I was in grammar school, I loved hanging out with our janitors, our custodians, because they had life experience and they were listening to the Giants on their transistor radios uh, in their little custodian, you know, area or location uh, growing up as a kid. So um, I've always been interested in the lessons that older people can share and uh, fortunate to have those people in my life and uh, the lessons, even after they've passed away, my parents have and coach wouldn't have, uh, but grateful that they took the time and showed interest and saw some potential in the young person and took me under their wing and shared me life lessons. And then that's why I enjoy coaching or teaching is you get to pass it on and share it with the younger generations. And hopefully the younger generations that came up under me will do the same in turn. And uh, that's really what life's about, kind of that cycle of life, of parenting and teaching and coaching leadership. I, I speak to you a couple of times a year, and I've always wanted to ask you this question, and I've never have. How is your vocabulary? You might have one of the better vocabularies I have ever <laughs> heard. The way you articulate things on TV, phenomenal. But just speaking to you, whether we're on the phone, even texting, you, you, you know, when you text me something, I read it in your voice. The way you 
you, you, you know, you're able to communicate. Where does, where does that come from? Well, it's interesting. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but actually we have theories, you know, growing up, uh, I was dyslexic and dysgraphic, but I grew up in an era where they didn't have these terms or titles, you know, for learning disability for people that learn differently. And I think that played a big part because I couldn't, you know, read or write uh, at the rate that, you know, the majority of young people were in my respective, you know, grade school beginning, let's say, you know, first grade, second grade. And uh, dyslexia is, you know, where you transpose uh, the symbols, whether it's in math or in letters when it comes to writing or reading. And uh, dysgraphia is like another twist to it because then they're upside down as well. So your brain is processing differently. And interestingly, um, that helped me. I don't, don't, don't completely understand why, but I think it made me a better listener. Correct. And I became a better learner uh, visually. And I was fortunate. I had parents that were both interested in their children, but also interested um, in ideas and in culture and in cinema and in music and um, in reading. And so their example, you know, they would bring me the Marx Brother films to Charlie Chaplin films that have the subtitles and uh, to Fellini, Cocteau, and Truffaut, great French and Italian filmmakers. They'd bring me into San Francisco. My dad was a teacher at Cal Berkeley, so I get to go over to Cal as well and, uh, you know, attend these film festivals of international film. And um, so I began to learn and a world, you know, unfolded uh, that was different than the traditional linear way of our country's education. Um, and naturally, I'd look at, you know, my friends, they could learn in a more linear way, uh, but I didn't learn that way. And uh, so listening and having an ear for language, uh, because I couldn't read or write, I think really informed me in a profound way. And it led to having gifts in other realms. And thankfully, by the time I was senior in high school and college, just the way the brain catches up, I was able to write and read at uh, the appropriate level for that you know, stage of my life. But uh, the struggles early in school uh, definitely informed a different way of learning, different sensibilities. It also informed compassion and, um, you know, just a degree of empathy for all the players I coached because many of them had the same challenges I had. So we, you know, were communicating on a different frequency um, because we shared that in common in terms of a different way of learning and seeing the world differently and looking at things through a different prism or lens because I couldn't learn in that conventional linear way. And uh, so I think dyslexics and kids that struggle with dysgraphia and are challenged learners, you know, naturally gravitate to each other because they can feel the love and they've got the connection uh, that kids who learn in a more conventional way and do well on SATs and uh, don't have the challenges that uh, creative learners have. So uh, I think that 
influence. Also, just an interest in language. My dad was an English teacher and a writer. He authored 17 books in writing and composition. And then John Wood, uh, someone I knew for 20 years and met him at Purdue because he was a three-time All-American there. And mm-hmm. Through that relationship, that played a big part in me coming to UCLA. And then when I was the interim coach, his advocacy led to me becoming the head coach. And he was a wordsmith and a poet and an author and an English teacher. Um, but he also was a great basketball player and a heck of a coach. But he really was interested in the etymology, you know, language, the study of language, and the origin of words, you know, the whole going back and reverse engineering, you know, in terms of Latin. And um, so I was surrounded by English teachers and people that are interested in words and language, whether it was lyrics and music um, or poetry or Thoreau or um you know, other great thinkers and writers. And, and that, I think, has uh, influenced my own outlook and my own interest uh, in language and ideas. I appreciate you telling me that because, I mean, because I know that's personal. I just, like I said, I had, I've always been meaning to ask you that, and I never have. So what are you doing now for the next couple of days? Man, uh, Jasmine, my sweetheart, is coming, uh, you know, up from L.A. So we're going to spend some time walking and hiking and biking and uh, just trying to get back out fresh air and some exercise and you know drop those 10 pounds you put on during the college hoop season because you're not in that routine that's not the most healthy routine uh, not complaining i love my work so uh, just getting back to being more active and getting outside and uh, we may do a little traveling we basically stayed like everyone has or most have in terms of uh, the COVID conditions, you know, really played it low key. We haven't gotten on planes other than just to go down to LA and to Charlotte for work. So we're looking forward to having some time decompress and, uh, and just enjoy the off season. Coach, I appreciate you coming on. It, 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 you, you have no idea how much it means to me. You gave me, I asked you for 20 minutes. You gave me an hour. You, you're the best. <laughs> You've always you've always have been there for me, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your patience. I know we've been trying to do this for maybe six months, but uh, there's something to be said for patience. It's one of the great virtues, and uh, we spoke about virtue earlier. Aristotle was big on virtues as well, and uh, the Jesuits, right, are big on virtues. But um, I appreciate that you didn't, you know, get uh, frustrated or you just. Uh, you know, hung with me, and I'm glad we were able to do it. I hope we get to do it again soon. Coach, take care of yourself. You've been listening to the Sergio Rodriguez Show, a show unlike any other. <laughs>